I actually sound surprisingly good for the microphone being so far away. Yeah, I can hear. I mean, do I sound okay? Yeah, you sound fine. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying mm-hmm. to say you sound fine and great at the same time. So I was going to say you sound freight. 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 We're just gonna have fluctuating audio. It's quarantine. They'll get it. Yeah, it, guys. I'm sorry. It's quarantine time. We are um, experiencing technical difficulties from trying to do this remotely. Yeah, this is our first episode we're doing remotely. So, yeah. um, let me. I just emailed myself something, cool. but I can't find my email. Cool. There cool. it is. <sighs> Oh. What? You know what my dumb self didn't do? What? The history. Mm. (laughs) Well. Okay, so we're going to do the history slightly different today, guys. Oh my god, are you just going to read from Wikipedia? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Hold on. Oh my god. We got this. We got this. This is so (laughs) us. Look, it's been a very, a very week. A very, it's, very week. It's been a very, very week. Um, yeah. <laughs> to be fair, with this history, it would have been short regardless. Oh, cause I'm fine with that. They have one paragraph that you can't see because oh. there's a crystal in the way. Yeah. Hi, Crystal. Do not. She can't hear me. She can't hear me. Why am I talking to her? Okay. Um, yeah. What have you been during? What have you been doing during quarantine? What have you been during doing? (laughs) (laughs) Um, let's see. I go to work because Mm -hmm. I am considered an essential employee. Yeah. Mm, But I'm grateful I have a job there so by the way uh, your lamp shade looks like a minion <laughs> oh no it's um it's a christmas story it's the leg i get that but the shade and it whatever like you have on top of it <laughs> it's a flower crown <laughs> It makes it, it look, look like, like eyes? a minion, yeah. Because hmm. <laughs> the entire time I'm sitting here thinking, Grace doesn't like the minions. Why does she have a minion lamp? No. I've got a newfound love during quarantine. No. Um, I've been working. Um, I'm also considered an essential employee. But you get However, to work from home. I get to work from home. Yeah. But when I'm not doing that... Um, I've been. What have I been doing? Absolutely I've been, nothing. I've been gardening. Oh yeah, and your plants are looking fantastic. Yeah. The baby ducks came outside yesterday, oh. like actually outside of the coop. How big are they now? They're about as big as the emo ducks. Oh, I love them. But they still have their baby feathers, so they're in the oh. ugly duckling stage. Love it. And it's precious. It. Feel it. I feel that personally. I'll um, I'll send you a video of it. Cause I don't think I sent you a video yesterday. Hey, hey, hey! I'm Rachel. I'm Grace. Welcome to the podcast. We are myths and misfortunes. We're a paranormal and true crime podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's making me laugh. Yeah. And. Each week, we pick somewhere in the world and base our stories on that place. And or surrounding areas. (laughs) On that place. Today. 
today 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 <coughs> i do not have the coronavirus <laughs> <laughs> we are in harrisville rhode island and my dumb butt forgot to do the history so we're gonna <laughs> do this a little little differently so harrisville is a village in the town of Burrowville in Providence County, Rhode Island. In the 2010 census, census, the population was at 1,605. So, really cute, tiny, small little town. Apparently, much of the community consists of a historic district that hmm. is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. So this whole place is literally just a little historic town. Just That's cute. Dropped in the middle of, well, kind of middle of Rhode Island. Yeah. I'm looking at a picture. It's not quite middle. It's up a little. Uh, it, up and over. It's up and over. Just, just a teensy. That's fine. It was named after 19th century manufacturer Andrew Harris. I don't know what he's a manufacturer of. It does not add a link. <laughs> but it's named after... This is after what happens when we literally read off of Wikipedia. But it is named after Andrew Harris. That is the point. Well, apparently Andrew Harris is also a football running back. Cool. Sports ball. Woo! Canadian football. Ooh, so it's better. I'm more interested. Yeah. More interested. <laughs> yeah, no. It gives no no link, though. Um, that is literally all of it. <laughs> it's named after Andrew Harris, guys, who is a manufacturer of something. I don't know what, but something. Super small town. Super Probably small. a lot of history that nobody ever reported. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that's literally the shortest history we've ever had. No, we've had a shorter one. It was Adams, Tennessee, remember? It was I like, feel like that was shorter. I feel like it was, this is shorter. I feel like this is shorter. Adams, Tennessee was like two sentences. This was barely a sentence. No! Yeah. No. I mean, mm-hmm, no. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Look, apparently, on a second website, my story makes up a lot of the history. So. <laughs> okay. Well, that is history, guys. I'm so sorry. I goofed. Oh, well. Oh, well. So, my story today... Is not in wherever Harris you said. Um, it's 19 minutes away in Woonsocket. Woonsocket? Woonsocket. I Woonsocket. hate saying it. Woonsocket. And I'm so sorry if you live there because it sounds disgusting. Just the name. It sounds awful. Woonsocket. W O O N socket. Oh, like a wound. wound. Yeah, no, wound, not wound. But wound. it sounds like wound socket. But it sounds like wound socket, yeah. which is gross. And I'm so sorry if you live there. My story is about Jeffrey. Oh, fuck. I didn't look up how to say it. Jeffrey Dahmer? No. <laughs> I would let you know. Okay. I would let you know way beforehand. I'd be like, hey, dude, I'm doing Jeffrey Dahmer. Just going to let you know. It's going to be a rough one. You would not surprise me with it. Okay, male hot. Male hot? Yes. Jeffrey male hot. Jeffrey male hot. Yeah. He's a serial killer. <laughs> Surprising. Male? Okay. Male Spelled exactly like postage? male M A I L H O T. Male, okay. male Ma- hot. Because my brain for some reason went to male as in. Yeah. You would. Male. Okay. Male hot. We got some hot mail. The mail's on fire. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. (laughs) Don't do that. Mm. It's a fire. So, my sources. 
Did you say your sources for the history? I think they can assume. It's it's Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so my sources for this story were Murderpedia, rimonthly.com, which is Rhode Island Monthly.com. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an article by John Larrabee and Russ Olivio, and archive.boston.com. It's this article by Michael Levinson. And both articles, especially that Rhode Island Monthly one, is so good. Oh, was it? It's It was so good. Okay. So, like, I'm an emotional person. Are you? I am. Okay. I, know, I like to pretend that I'm not, not an emotional yeah. person. I really do. But I cry at dumb shit. I cry at anything. I'll cry at, like commercials pretty flowers like you name it super emotional like i'll pretend i'm not to i'll pretend i'm not to i'll pretend that i'm not i cried at like make jokes and shit yeah you cried at what rspca commercial oh yeah see yeah arms yeah yeah it was horrible I cry at that shit all the time. I'll be watching a TV show and I'll just like burst into tears because it's like emotional. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So, but no, like I make a lot of jokes when I'm uncomfortable. So like, you know, like a yeah. lot of other people. But for some reason, this one made me like so sad. Oh, I'm sorry. And it's, I mean, I like I look up stories all the time like this, like every true crime story, like I get angry when I research them, usually, though, because I'm so mad that people are so, like, fucking rude. And I got mad during this one. Mm-hmm. But it also, just this, like, one part of it made me so sad. And, because they're just, like, truly, like, deplorable people out there. It just made me angry. So, um, now I'm gonna make you sad. Okay. <clears throat> I do, I do not look forward to it. I mean... <laughs> It's what we do, right? It's our jobs. Okay, so Audrey Harris, a 33-year-old woman, vanished on February 9th, 2003, after talking to her mother on the phone, telling her that she would visit her later that day. Mm -hmm. Over a year later, in April of 2004, 42-year-old Christine Dumont disappeared, having been last seen leaving a friend's car. Oh, no. On July 4th of 2004, Stacy. Ooh, I didn't look that up either. Fuck. Stacy. Goulet. 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 G O U L E T. Goulet? Okay, look, guys, I'm gonna say Goulet. Goulet. <clears throat> Goulet? She's. It's Goulet. Goulet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Stacy Goulet. Okay. In July of 2004, Stacy Goulet. Goulet. Just saying both, just in case. A pregnant 24-year-old mother of two disappeared. Oh. Yeah, it's rough. Their families all reported them missing to police and even began searches of their own all around the city. The thing about all of these women, though, is that they were all sex workers. Surprisingly, unlike most cases you hear about involving sex workers, the police genuinely cared about them, you know, Mm. because they're fucking people. Yeah. Uh, every once in a while, as far back as the early 90s, Woonsocket police suspected that there might be a serial killer targeting sex workers um, because they seemed to disappear a lot. But most of the time, they were actually just isolated incidents, but this time was different. Detectives Luke Simard, Sim- sure. Simard? Simard, sure. Simard. Stephen Nowak and Edward Lee were the ones leading the case, and Novak said that one of the main reasons they knew that this was different was because there was nothing. There, um, like, they just disappeared. There were no clues, no suspects, nothing. But often with sex workers, they willingly get into cars with people they don't know, and people don't think twice. They just see someone getting in a car, and there's no yelling, no struggle. Yeah. Like, no one sees anything out of the ordinary. So at this point, they're desperate and not getting any answers when they get a call in mid-July from a man on a police tip line. So the caller, who was never identified, told police they might want to try to contact Jocelyn Martell. Mm -hmm. They found her at a detention center awaiting trial for probation violation related to a drug charge. Mm -hmm. 
detectives that asked about the disappearances, but she didn't really know, she didn't know where any of them were. Instead, she told them about a man who had attacked her. Oh. Yeah. Martel told them one night in June of 2004, between the disappearances of Christine Dumont and Stacy. Stacy. <laughs> between Christine and Stacy, uh, she was standing outside of Thunder Mist Health Center, a clinic for the poor in Woonsocket, when a short man approached her and asked if she wanted to go home with him. They arranged a price, a price for sex, and she went with him to a greenhouse not far from downtown. A greenhouse? It's a it's a house, but it's green. Oh, okay. I was like greenhouse. Okay. I know. Just living in a greenhouse. That's okay. Hey, it's it's my dream. Mine so. too. Literally, <laughs> I had a dream about it. <laughs> So she told police that they walked up the steps to his apartment and he let her in. She noticed that the place was spotless, that even the remotes on his coffee table were lined up by size. And she asked him if he wanted to go to his bedroom or the living room. And when she turned around away from him, Mm -hmm. he began to choke her from behind. Honey. Yeah. She fought back, butting him in the head and he stumbled back and she jabbed him in the eye with her thumb. Good girl. Right. Yes. She said that she, <laughs> that he really wasn't trying to get up and go after her, so she just ran out the door. Okay. And she obviously didn't report it because sex workers aren't generally treated very well, and she was on probation already. Yeah. So, Detective Edward Lee checked the police reports when they returned back to police headquarters, and he found an incident report filed by a woman named Tees... Tees? Tees? T e e s e. Oh, Tessie. Sure, Tess. Sure, Morris. Between the disappearances of Audrey Harris and Christine Dumont, that described a similar assault at a similar location. Mm-hmm. Morris told police that at first everything was fine. She was happy that she was with a cute guy for once. That he was friendly, polite, talking to her. And when out of nowhere, he came up behind her and began to choke her. And she said that she could feel herself starting to lose consciousness. And then she started to fight back, kicking him, trying to do anything to get away from him, begging for her life. They ended up in the bedroom and she tried to escape by kicking out a window until she was finally able to get free from him. There also was a third victim that police talked to, but she refused to file a complaint. Both Martell and Morris's description of the building matched two two one Cato Street. The detec the detectives <laughs> the detectives identified the suspect through utility bills and a picture from the DMV. When they showed the two women the photo spread, uh, they showed the two photo women spread. photo spreads, and they both picked out the same picture. Of Jeffrey Mailhot, a then 33-year-old factory worker at Proma Technologies. So, what I am learning from all of these serial killers, do not go for the conventionally attractive guys (laughs) that are smooth talkers. I mean, a lot of serial killers are ugly, though. I know. But just like the, the ones that get away with it. I mean... For a while. I don't know. I mean, they were just trying to make money, so... I know. Yeah. Um, so, Jeffrey Mailhot, I really didn't want to go too much into him, because he made me so fucking mad. Um, okay. He... He's basically one of those people that everyone said was such a nice person, so kind mm. and quiet. He's not even pictured in his senior yearbook. It just lists him as camera shy. Yeah. Smackable is what he is. He is, indeed. His landlord called him the ideal tenant, a guy with a steady job who always had the rent check. Old girlfriends, friends, and co-workers described him as a nice guy who liked bodybuilding, motorcycles, and karaoke. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's funny, the bartender of the karaoke place that he usually went to um, said that he didn't stand out in a crowd, good or bad. So he was average. He was not noticeable whatsoever. He's Um, a where's Waldo. 
uh, yeah. He had no prior run-ins with police. He did, however, like to hang out at places on Arnold Street where there's a lot of sex work and drug activity. Mm -hmm. And on July 16, 2004, Mailhot returned home from work and officers arrested him and brought him in for questioning. They asked him if he ever picked up a sex worker and he said that he had seen them around before but hadn't picked any up. Well, that he had picked up one girl that he thought he had seen before, thinking she needed a ride, but then she propositioned him, so he let her out. Um, sure, sure bud. He did. Yeah. So already lying, obviously. Yeah. Because he's been identified by those two women. They told him they didn't really care if he was embarrassed to have picked up a sex worker. Detective Lee said, we're trying to get to the bottom of something, but if we start off like this, where it appears you're not telling the truth, it doesn't look good for you. What? Yeah. Yeah. Um, When they asked Mailhot again if he had picked up any sex workers, he said yes. They laid out pictures of Audrey, Christine, and Stacy on the table, and Mailhot immediately said, I don't know who they are. Detectives asked him how he was so sure, and he said, because I never killed anybody, and that's what you're getting at. And then, like, out of some kind of fucking, like, goddamn movie, they're like, who said anything about killing? They're missing. Like, a gotcha moment. Yeah. Basically, they tried to guilt him into confessing by talking about his parents, who had died of cancer by the time Mm -hmm. he was 22, telling him that... His parents had proper burials, but the families of the missing women would never have that. They never got to say goodbye. So, they laid out the pictures again and asked him what happened. If things got out of hand, he nodded and said yes. Okay. Mailhot said he wanted to be honest, saying, I don't want to hide anymore. I don't want this shit inside me anymore. I want to do what I have to do to help the situation any way I can, and I want... that to be my last act. I'm not expecting forgiveness. So he's admitting guilt? Mm-hmm. That he, he did it? Yes. He okay. began telling the detectives how he'd picked up around 30 sex workers. Most of the time, they would come back to his place. He couldn't recall how many he had choked, um, He, but he guessed about 10 to 12, and they had all survived and escaped. However. However. He described a couple of the attacks and recalled that on two occasions his victims fell to the floor unconscious, but both were back up in minutes and ran away. Another one who got uh, away stood outside shouting that she had a cell phone and that she dialed 911, but the cops never showed. One woman convinced him to stop by um, acting submissive towards him, calling him, like, master and saying, like, that it was hurting her. Yeah. And that worked. Oh, I'm sure it worked for him. Yeah, he well, no, it, like, worked. Like, he was like, I'm not into this anymore. You can just bounce out. When asked if any of them fought back, he said he got some scratches, and one of them gouged his eye to get away, which was um, Martell. Yeah. His first kill was Audrey Harris. He was driving home after drinking too much beer at a strip club when he saw her and brought her home. According to Mailhunt, he was just going to have sex with her, but when she turned around, he walked up behind her and started choking her. But she tried to get away by kicking and scratching, but then she just stopped struggling, and when he looked at her, her eyes were open, but she wasn't looking at anything. Oh my god. Yeah. He figured she was dying, so he grabbed a pillow and suffocated her. Fucking dumbass. Yeah. He insisted insisted that it was an accident that he didn't want to do it but once he realized what was happening he was scared and had to finish it like he just had to follow through (laughs) oh then he said (laughs) he was stunned by what happened um for like a couple of minutes but then he shook it off and dragged her body to the bathroom and stumbled off to bed when he got up to use the bathroom in the morning He was startled when he saw the body in his tub, and he remembered what had happened the night before. He said he called into work, saying he needed a day off. He then wrapped Audrey's body in a rug and put it in his car, driving around the city looking for a place to dump it, but he brought it back because he thought it would be too risky. So, 
The body... This is so awful. The body laid in his apartment for two days until he found a way to get rid of it. Yeah. Inspired by an episode of The Sopranos, he bought a handsaw and dismembered her body in the bathtub. Yeah, he separated her limbs into trash bags and put them into commercial dumpsters all around the city. And then he stopped back at the strip club before heading home to go to bed. This guy is so gross. Yes. He, okay, so he picked up Christine. Hi. He can't hear me. I don't know why I'm saying it. He picked up Christine Dumont a little over a year later and um, one month after he attacked Jocelyn Martell. Mm -hmm. He, oof, words. He picked up Christine Dumont a little over a year later and then one month after attacking Jocelyn Martell, he picked up Stacy at a 4th of July fireworks show at a park. Both women were killed in his apartments by strangulation, and the bodies were dismembered and disposed of in the same way as Audrey Harris. Mila was the only resident in the four-unit building. Um, There was an elderly woman who lived there, too, but she passed away. So whenever he brought a victim home, no one could hear the sounds of the attacks or their cries for help. Really? Yeah. He said he would go out searching for a sex worker, just looking for sex, but once um, they were in his home, and as soon as the door would close, it was like an urge, and he just had to do it. But if... But if it wasn't a kink for them to go along with it... Yeah. Um, He said it became almost like a routine. Like, he would kill dismember the body, toss the parts in a dumpster, and then stop for a drink on the way home. No. Yeah. There's some... mm. Yeah, he's... Ooh, I'll get into it. I will. I'll get into it. Um, He also told... This this is one of the worst parts for me. He also told them that he disposed of a latex glove and some small body pieces by flushing them down the toilet. Ew. So fucking... His confession lasted six hours where he detailed how he committed the murders, how he could get the right angle where he would use his weight to put less effort into choking them. Truly disgusting. Disgusting human being. Detective Lee said for him it was all a fantasy. He'd slip into this fantasy to escape in his... He'd slip into this fantasy to escape his depressive world and once he's taken that final step, once he kills, it's like an alcoholic. He had a taste. He's addicted. Mm-hmm. And no way he's going to stop. Mm-hmm. And he didn't. No. And even, even during the confession, he said, maybe I was doing them a favor because they were just killing themselves anyway. They were just going down the drain. Like the way he, he dehumanized these women as a way to feel control and then dismiss them in his confession is just awful it's so awful he is the worst kind of man he is the worst and then he had the actual audacity to talk about how the world's just a dark dark place and how he felt purposeless what year was this again 2003 to 2004 first of all 2003 2004 was actually not that bad (laughs) i don't think that's what he meant rachel i know (laughs) 2003 was fine. (laughs) It wasn't even a bad year. (laughs) God. Um, When asked if he would kill again if given the chance, he said, I probably would. I probably would. You know, commend him for his honesty so so he can be arrested. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, so, even with the confession, they still had to get physical evidence in order mm-hmm. to convict. So, with that confession, they were able to search his home. And while it seemed like a normal bachelor pad at first, once they reached the bathroom, they sprayed the tub, floor, and walls with a uh, luminol aerosol spray. Yeah. And that shit lit up. It's like they were at a disco. Like they were at a fucking disco and everything was disgusting. Yeah. So, they Come literally here. took the tub, the toilet, floorboards, pipes, and sections of the wall as evidence. And they found the handsaw he used to cut up the bodies in the basement. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'll be back. Okay. The babies have discovered corn. Oh. Look at them. They've discovered the corn. Corn. Jesus. Corn over and over again. Oh fuck. Corn. Corn. Okay. Where were we? That's a good question. <clears throat> where were we? They found the handsaw he used to cut up bo the bodies in the basement. They also went through the sewer lines to see if they could find any evidence of the small body parts or latex glove male hot claimed to have flushed. It turned out to be a dead end, though. Oh. And then officers searched the landfill, where they found a trash bag with human remains inside. They confirmed with DNA samples provided by the victim's families that the remains belonged to Stacy. Oh. Yeah. Poor Stacy. They couldn't find any remains belonging to Harris or Dumont, but they were able to run DNA tests on blood collected from Mailhot's bathroom, confirming that they were both killed there. None of that evidence was presented in court, though, because oh. Mailhot decided to forego a trial. Lovely. Yeah. He said himself he couldn't bring anybody back and said that an apology wasn't enough, but that that's all that he could do. On yeah. February, right, like, oof, he makes me mad. On February 15th, 2006, uh, Mailhot pleaded guilty to three counts of murder and two counts of assault. The judge sentenced him to two life terms plus 10 years. He should be eligible for parole by age 77. Well, yeah. Hopefully by then. Hope um, he did. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he got the Rona. Anyway. <laughs> you know, that's a good question for Google after all this. Yeah, actually, probably. Yeah. Um, that's your story? And we both hate him? Uh, there's more. Oh, good. Okay. He told the court... Say. Yeah, he told the court, nothing I can do can take away the pain. I hope God can give the families, both the victims and my own, some peace. Jocelyn Martell told Mailhot in court that she believed that God spared her life the night of her attack so she could mm -hmm. help unravel the case. She said, Mr. Mailhot, I hope you get all you deserve today because a lifetime of suffering is never enough. No, it's not. The relatives of Mailhot's victims also had the chance to speak during his sentencing. They acknowledged that <clears throat> they acknowledged that the women had ties to drug abuse and sex work, that they weren't perfect, but they weren't garbage to be disposed of. Yeah. What they said um, was, like, super heartbreaking. Um Audrey Harris's mother asked where her daughter's body was, and Dumont's nieces wrote this poem about how she was a mother with a heart of gold. And Stacy's father showed Mailhot a picture of his granddaughter and said that that's the girl whose mother he had taken away. And Mailhot broke into tears when he accused him of bringing shame on his family. And that's a deeply upsetting story <laughs> of serial killer Jeffrey Mailhot. There actually was one more thing um, that I wasn't sure if I really wanted to add. There was this thing I found about he had this girlfriend who, like, they were on again, off again. Yeah. And they started getting a little bit more serious. And they felt comfortable with each other. So she, um, they were, like, trying to introduce new stuff into the bedroom and one of those things was choking yeah and so she even told him once she was like oh my god you look psychotic when you do that and but that they like they both enjoyed it and then afterwards she was obviously like horrified and then she like reached out to him while he was in prison and she was like did you ever feel that way like towards me Mm -hmm. And he said, no, never, which 
<clears throat> just tells me that he, like, it's it was one of those things where, like, in his mind, they were in two completely separate groups. Mm-hmm. Like, there were the people that he knew and loved and cared for, and then it was like that the thing where he literally just dehumanized the women that he attacked. But then it also comes down to, unless your relationship is the type of relationship where they're okay with sharing you, why would you go out for s- to have sex with someone else? He was, they were, it, it was an on-again, off-again relationship, and I don't think they were together during any of this, but regardless okay. if they were or not, even if they were in an open relationship, like, I think that's just so terrifying to, like, be dating a man who, and, you like, you start introducing that sort of thing, and then it becomes his literal signature for how yeah. he kills women. I think that's terrifying. That was very terrifying, and she must have, like, so much guilt about oh, that herself. She, I, oof. I mean, I would. I think I would, too, but I don't want to put that on her, so I'm not going no, please, please don't feel guilty about that yeah. either, because that's just, it's, it's him. He's, it is absolutely him. That's he's, just, he's the crazy head. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's my really awful story. All right. Ooh. But yeah, once again, please, um, be patient with us. We are recording remotely, remotely. for the first time. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I'm having to use my tablet yeah. that I've not used in ages. So, we'll see how this works. <laughs> Cap. <With> your butt. <laughs> I hope my story will be less depressing, but also... But also it's it kind might of not. not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is probably just a depressing episode. Yeah. So, my story today, guys, is the... Perrin family haunting, a.k.a. The Conjuring. Oh my god. What? My sources are historycollection.co, thelineup.com, usatoday.com, allthatsinteresting.com, ew.com, historyvershollywood.com, providencejournal.com, supernaturalmagazine.com, and... The literal movie, The Conjuring. There. That was a lot of sources. It, yeah, I've got a lot of sources for only three pages in a paragraph. It was very But repetitive. it's your three pages. I know. Okay. As many people knew, The Conjuring was released in 2013 and depicts the horrific events that happen to a family with five young girls. The family moves into a huge old farmhouse, eager to begin their lives in the new home, as most people would. Right. Crystal. Nothing much really happens at first, of course. There's a few odd noises that can generally be attributed to a settling house. And for the mother, random bruises that just show up. And she sure. just kind of... Yeah. Well, and she just kind of writes it off as, you know, bumping into things and forgetting. Yeah. Like I do. That. I, do I, actually, I actually Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, in real life, the family consisting of Mother Carolyn, Father Roger, and their five daughters, Andrea, Nancy, Christine, April, and Cynthia... They moved into the 14-room farmhouse in the winter of 1970. That is a lot of kids. That is a lot of rooms. 14 room. Yeah, that's a lot. Also, the house that is the actual house looks nothing like the house in the movie. Just Uh, FYI. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, it looks nothing like the house. It... That's slightly disappointing. I know, right? Because that was a beautiful house in the movie. Okay. The old house was known as the Old Arnold Estate. The children, who obviously are grown adults now, remember a neighbor telling them to leave their lights on at night. 
Ooh. I don't know why, but they didn't think anything of it. They were just kind of like, eh, crazy neighbor. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, yeah, eh. sure, we'll listen, uh-huh. Yeah, sure, we're gonna listen to you. Yeah. Just like in the movie, it started small, um, weird noises, shifting objects. Mm. In, yeah, right. In one interview with Cindy, who was one of the children, mm-hmm. she claimed that objects would be in different positions than she left them or shoved up under her bed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She initially blamed her sisters, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you do when you have siblings. We, yeah. However, they all denied all the allegations. Right. Uh, this did lead to a riff in the family as the girls were constantly fighting with each other. The mother actually had to intervene and tell them to stop. Yeah. Moms. Yeah. It's like, uh, you stop it or I'm gonna, don't make me come back there. <laughs> She's touching me. You stop that right now. I'm not now. touching you. I'm not touching not you. Touching I'm not you. touching you. I lost my spot. Sorry. It's okay. Okay. These events were soon forgotten about and became the normal. Hmm. However, even Carolyn, the mother, experienced this. The broom would go missing or it would be found in a place that it wasn't left. Mm-hmm. She would hear the sound of something scraping against the kettle in the kitchen mm. when no one was there. I don't like that. I don't either. I would hate that. She would even find piles of dirt in her freshly cleaned kitchens. What the fuck? I would be so pissed off at that. Like, I just cleaned my entire kitchen and the stupid ghost is... Dirt. Dirt. Yeah. Like, hey, you want a pile of dirt? Crystal. Oh. They soon began seeing and feeling the presence of the spirits... Cindy would even share her toys with the children who would visit her in her bedroom. They all believed that the spirits were of no harm to them and actually enjoyed playing with them. Some of the spirits even took to the roles of babysitting and tucking the children into bed. Wow, how fucking lazy can you get? Hey, um, Ghost Mark, can you, uh, can you watch the kids real quick? I don't know. That's the first name I can think of. Mark. <laughs> Ghost Mark, yes. <laughs> hey, Ghost Mark. Uh, well. <laughs> she is yelling. Who is? Crystal. Oh. Okay. Well, Ghost Mark. Ghost Mark. <laughs> Ghost Mark. Uh... Yeah, we've got a babysitter. Oh, can I borrow him one night? Uh, you know. <laughs> Maybe he's, if you come over, if your kids come to our house. He's, he's really expensive. You gotta sell your soul. Yeah. It's a whole thing. <laughs> not, not just a piece, the entire. I mean, at yes. this point... During coronavirus, um, I'm pretty sure a bunch of people would be willing to sell their souls to not have Valid. to wash their children for a little bit. Valid, yes. The girls remember, for the first two months living in the house, a woman would come into their rooms at night and kiss them on the foreheads. Andrea, who was the eldest, recalled that her mother smelled like ivory soap, and the spirit who would visit them at night smelled like flowers and fruit. So she knew this was not her mother. I don't like that. Well, Well, of course you know it's not your mother. All you gotta do is open your fucking eyes. I'm sorry. If if you're asleep, and especially with little kids, they don't tend to... Yeah, that's fair. If somebody kissed me on the forehead while I was asleep, I'd freak the fuck out. Especially because I sleep in a locked room. (laughs) Well, yeah. While most of the spirits encountered by the children were just run-of-the-mill Casper the Friendly Ghosts, the parents were experiencing something entirely different. They always do. Yeah. One morning, Carolyn woke up just before dawn and saw an old woman 
standing by her bed. Mm. She was a very tall woman who was an who wore an old gray dress and had her head hanging to the side. Ooh, it's um mm, from the Hill House. The bent neck lady. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I thought too. Uh, but 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 she was a very tall woman who wore an old gray dress and saw and had her head hanging to the side, resembling a sack of cops <laughs> cops webs. <laughs> resembling a sack of cobwebs with tendrils of hair sticking out. This is that is what Carolyn said. I relate. <laughs> Me too. Just a big old sack of cobwebs over here. <laughs> At this point, the spirit told her, get out, get out. I'll drive you out with death and gloom. Death and gloom? Death and gloom. When their father would open the front door, he would be overwhelmed by the smell of death. (laughs) And although the family did not go down to the basement often, that's where the heating equipment for the house was. And unfortunately, that was frequently going out. Oh. So whenever Roger would go down to fix the equipment, he is said to have felt a cold, stinking presence Ew. standing behind him. I would never, I would not ever. like that. No. 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 At this point, the nice, friendly spirits that the children were accustomed to began to be replaced by the ones that their parents had been seeing. Oh. There were disembodied voices speaking of seven bodies being buried in the walls. No. Slamming doors. Fruit would ooze blood. What? And the distressed voice of a little boy crying for his mother. No. And then the spirit would wake the family up every morning at 5.15. The presence would fill the room with the smell of rotting flesh and then would proceed to lift the beds. I was going to say, wow, it's just like your dogs, except they don't do those last two. (laughs) No, they don't. Um, Andrea actually claimed that there was a... Her exact words were a very bad male spirit who would torture the five girls. Ew. Yeah. That's kind of what I thought, too. Mm. Okay. The female spirit, who Carolyn awoke to that one morning, resorted to threatening the family more. She began pinching and slapping them. That's rude. Even apparently stabbing Carolyn with a knitting needle. What the fuck? Yeah. Like stabbing her, stabbing her? So what happened is Carolyn, she was asleep on the couch or something or talking to someone. And suddenly she felt a sharp pain. Mm -hmm. And when she looked down to her leg, there was like a perfect circular indention Oh. And it was bleeding. Oh. Like she had been stabbed with a knitting needle. Knitting needles are very hard to stab people with. Um, So, like, good force. Yeah. Yeah. That's rough. Yeah. Um, Unlike the movie, Carolyn decides to do her own research regarding the history of the house. It's a nail file. Oh, I thought it was a paintbrush. I was like, what are you doing? Painting my face. (laughs) Okay. She discovered that eight generations of one family had lived within the house. And many of them died mysterious and horrible deaths. Mm. Some by suicide, some by murder, and some children had drowned. Ooh. The, uh... The oldest daughter did confirm that these were probably most of the spirits that they encountered. 
because most of them had died in such a sudden and traumatic way that they did not know that they were actually dead. Oh. That's... Hmm. Yeah. Now Carolyn did stumble upon records of a woman named Bathsheba Thayer, who was born in Rhode Island in 1812. She married local farmer Judson... Judson. Judson. <laughs> Judson Sherman when she was in her 30s. Five years after their marriage, Bathsheba gave birth to their son, Herbert, who Aww, grew up to be, yeah, I know, right? Aww. Who grew up to be a successful farmer, like his father. Oh, Herbert. And, yeah. And they had three more children, Julia, Edward, and George, born between 1845 and 1853. These three younger children, unfortunately, did not make it to the next census. Oh, but, you know, during that time, that was very normal, yeah. and I don't think, she, I really don't think she did anything to her children, it's just... They just weren't it, it healthy enough to To survive, yeah. Yeah. But because, you know, their older son made it, mm. just the three younger ones didn't. However, when her neighbor's infant suddenly died while in her care, rumors escalated within the small community quickly. Ooh. Yes. She can't keep any kid alive. She's killing them kids. She has one. You know, I'm just saying that's what they're saying. (laughs) Yeah, that's what they're saying. According to doctors of the time, the child due to... The child died due to impalement of the skull by a needle. Oh. But it is super unclear as to whether this was an accident or a murder. This has, of course, changed over time. The story. Mm. It has been claimed that she was a witch who made a pact with the devil in which she was granted youthful beauty, but that she would, in turn turned to stone at her death. Oh. There are rumors that she killed her own child as a sacrifice to Satan. Oh. And in the movie, she then proclaims her love for Satan before killing herself as well. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah. Apparently, she was condemned in the afterlife to torture people. One source How do you know what happens in the afterlife? How do you... Okay. Okay. One source said, out of jealousy for never being beautiful again. Okay. Yeah. Keeping truer to the original story of the child with the impaled skull, Mm. some have said that she brought with her to the afterlife her knitting needles, which she then used to torture her victims, poking, prodding, and stabbing them. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, with all of these stories in mind, and having been stabbed herself, Carolyn believed that the spirit plaguing them was that of Bathsheba. As Andrea put it, whoever the spirit was, she perceived herself to be the mistress of the house, and she resented the competition that... Carolyn posed for that position. What? I just think that's so funny. It's like, um, I'm the woman of the house. Here's a pile of dirt on your floor. Well, (laughs) while Carolyn was being tortured by Bathsheba, who is constantly stabbing her and hiding things to make her feel as if she was going crazy, Roger only ever experienced love from the spirit with, mm. and one source said this, loving caresses and innuendos. Ooh, gross. That, yeah. that ghost jerked him off. You know it. <laughs> I don't know that, but sure. <laughs> Alright. Feeling as if the family had had enough torture. In the movie, Carolyn gets in contact with Ed and Lorraine Warren after mm. a symposium that they hold at a local college. 
However, in actual real life, it was a family friend named Barbara who went to see them in Putnam, Connecticut, because they were known to work on paranormal cases. Good old Barb. Yeah, thanks, Barb. The two immediately decided that they would investigate the haunting, and upon their arrival, Carolyn is said to have been ecstatic that someone believed her and wanted to help. Mm Mm-hmm. Roger, on the other hand, was not happy about bringing someone else into the situation. Oh, of course not. He's getting uh, hand jobs from a ghost. Well, rather than helping rid the family of the spirits, the Warrens just kind of instigated them. Yeah. Making everything so much worse for the family. So... The story I told earlier, you know what? I'm just going to repeat it. If I sound repetitive, oh well. According to Lorraine Warren, Bathsheba was the spirit tormenting the family. She had lived on the property during the early 19th century, and she had been a practicing Satanist and murdered her young daughter as a sacrifice to Lucifer. Mm Mm-hmm. She then followed already established black magic rituals, which, no, don't. Where are these already established black magic rituals? Where can I find them? Grace, no. (laughs) No. I don't have any daughters to sacrifice. Okay, but these black magic rituals told her she had to hang herself from a tree in order to haunt the house forever like that's why she did it according to you're right you're right i I don't want that you're right yeah i don't want that well according to the warrens this is why the spirit appeared the way she did to carolyn bent neck lady yes yes bent neck lady the warrens began by speaking to each member of the family getting all of the information that they could before finally holding a seance with Carolyn and Roger in the basement of the house. Not much is known of what happened in the basement during that seance, and Lorraine never spoke about it publicly. However, she was clearly disturbed by something that she saw. The eldest daughter claimed to have snuck down into the basement during the seance, She remembers at one point her mother spoke in a language not of this world. Sure. How do you know? And in a voice not her own. Oh. I was like, she's probably just speaking Spanish or something. (laughs) Well, I mean, my... When I read that quote, my initial thought was, okay, not of this world. She's 12. She's in Rhode Island. How... How Plus, much does what, she know what, about other... What year was that, too? 1970? Oh, she knows what Spanish sounds like. Never mind. But if it was Latin... I feel like they would know what Latin is because they used to... Ha- yeah, you th- they used to have Latin classes in schools. Did they? Yeah. In the 70s? Yeah, my mom took Latin. Pretty sure. Oh, I'll ask her about it. I'll ask her about it. Well, she claims it was a language not of this world. they probably went to church. Nope. They were not a religious family. I don't know about that. Her mom loves Satan. (laughs) Her mom doesn't love Satan. You're thinking Bathsheba. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm getting him confused (laughs) in my mind. (laughs) Yes. Her mom Uh, loves Satan. (laughs) all right andrea also claimed that her mother's chair levitated and that she was thrown across the room 20 feet while still in the chair oh at least that's how i understood the way that it was quoted Mm -hmm. it yeah but that's also shown in the movie so oh yeah worried about carolyn's mental stability and well-being Roger threw the Warrens out after the seance. However, in the movie, everything was still all fine and dandy after the seance ended. 
things do not always work out that way in real life. Yeah. Over the next decade, the Warrens continued to visit the family in an attempt to alleviate the paranormal activity, but they had no luck. Now, in these cases, people often ask families why they don't just move. Right. And plain and simple, you get it because I get it. Yeah. They don't have the money for it. Yeah. And it's not like it's just like pride. And like I'm myself am that type of person who's like, just get out, just get out. But at the yeah. same time it's like they don't have money. It's like you get it. Like they yeah. just spent all their money getting this house. Yeah. Well, and that's literally my next line. Unfortunately, Roger and Carolyn literally put all of their money into the two hundred acre farm yeah. during the seventies. Yeah. And then the economy tanked oh, yeah. very soon yeah. after. And even if they could have just moved in with friends, no one, literally no one, would have taken in a family of yeah, seven a family with big. five teenage girls. For real, nobody's nobody's got a 14 house, a uh, 14 bedroom 14 house. house. Yeah. Except well, for them. Well, it's 14 room, not 14 bedroom. What the fuck? Yeah, I know. I just room being, includes I was just being living dramatic. Room. I was just Kitchen. being dramatic. Okay. okay, 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 okay. And for an undetermined amount, amount of time. time. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, hey, Definitely can me that. and my uh, entire, like, family, fucking yeah. family just move into your house for who knows how long. The family finally sold the house in 1980 mm-hmm. and moved to Georgia, never looking back. However, they believe that Bathsheba still haunts them today. Really? They actually call it Bathsheba's curse. One they believe example is when the family was visiting the set of The Conjuring while it was, you know, filming. Mm-hmm. A rogue gust of wind came out of nowhere and knocked any and everything down that was in its path. Including Carolyn, uh-huh. who fell, broke a hip, and had to be taken to the hospital. Uh, I don't know about that. Well, from her hospital bed, she claimed that it was Bathsheba not wanting her story to be exposed. I thought she was only bound to the house. I didn't think she could, like, leave the house. Logically, ghosts do not. Which... It's a tulpa. <laughs> I mean, maybe. How many episodes in in a row can we say that? (laughs) All of them. Yeah. The house has been featured in a few ghost hunting shows, one being Ghost Hunters, where they caught cold spots and a door opening on its own. Oh my god. To the, at the time, owner's dismay. Because this owner did not believe that the house was haunted as... (laughs) The parents had claimed. It's, like, it's not haunted. It, I'm, it's just my home. Fuck. <laughs> I'm just trying to have a nice little farm here. Can you please yeah. leave me alone? Yeah. And most recently, Ghost Adventures did an episode there. However, I have not watched it since it came out. And honestly, I cannot tell you what happened. Um, probably something dramatic. Probably. There is, however, a couple that lives there now who does admit that activity happens, and as opposed to, you know, the owner who lived there before, and (laughs) my theory is that possibly all the negativity surrounding the house might have brought in an actual demon. Oh. That took on the form of Bathsheba. Yeah. Because if all the actual research points to the fact that Bathsheba is a good Baptist Christian devoted wife and mother, mm. and if that's the case, then this being is not, is not right. her whatsoever. And... In fact, she actually did not die from hanging herself. Oh, she didn't? She did not. One of the sources said that a physician who was there during her death mm-hmm. 
claimed that she had died following a strange bout of paralysis, which is so often associated with a stroke. Right. So... That's definitely not hanging. No. That's why I'm just kind of like, mmm, demons. Yeah. Not because of her, but demons. Tulpa. Anyway. (laughs) Sure, because Tulpa's no Latin. I mean, they might. It's just an extension of ourselves. It's true. But that is my story. It was a good one. I actually really enjoy doing the research on it. I enjoyed the research on mine initially. Uh Like, I read through all of that, and then I think this time writing it, I was just like, I don't know if it's just being in my house for so long and not going out anywhere, or if, like... You're just distracted. Or if it's just, like, hormones or what, but this time I just felt, like, very sad. Yeah. I just felt a lot more sad. And I got mad. (laughs) Okay, but to be fair, it's easy to get mad at your story. It is. It really is. But I just, like, I don't know. Well, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Myths and Misfortunes or Twitter at Myths Misfortune. Or you can search for us using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes. We do pop up. You can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. Our music was composed by McKean Fulbright and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. We'd appreciate it so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye.